thank you, Father in heaven, that we are blessed to come before you. We come to worship you, God the Father, in the name of God the Son, and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that what you find in our hearts, we pray that our worship may be acceptable in your sight, pleasing to you, a sweet smell in your divine nostrils. We pray that this may be a day of salvation and grace for boys and girls downstairs as their teachers labor for their souls. We pray that people in this room may believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. We pray that wherever the name of Jesus is lifted up all over this globe today, that you would draw sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we ask that you will grant us that illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you will open thou our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things in your law as we seek to make gain for our souls from John chapter 10. Thank you for it, the chapter, in Jesus' name, amen. So let me remind you that what's in John chapter 10 is rather repetitive. There are themes that come up again and again. Uh, some of the themes come up as many as six times. It comes up here and then later again, then again and again. And, and if I was to just preach verse by verse through the whole section, I'm going to be preaching the same thing six times when I hit that theme every single time. Like how am I going to say it differently this time? Now really how am I going to say it differently this time? So rather than go through it verse by verse, which is what I personally love to do, uh, we're going through it topically. We're taking all the verses on that theme, identifying the theme, looking at the verses, and then making some points about them. So that's how we're proceeding. We began last week with point number one. Here it is. I'll re review it and show it to you. And we saw from John 10 that there are people who would damage your soul and you must flee them. We found that in verse 5. It's so important. I'm going to go back to it for a second. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. By the way, most of the verses in the sermon today are not going up on the screen. So you want to grab your paper Bible. I love paper Bibles. There's probably extra credit where you enter the gates of heaven if you use the paper Bible. Uh, but an app will do, and I use an app too, so bless you. You might want to have your app open so you can look at the verses with me in the chapter today. But there are people who would damage your soul, and you must flee them. And I'll just ask you again, are you fleeing them? Then our second point last week was this. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, I should have said, and you must follow him whom you must follow. And I'll ask you, do you follow Jesus Christ? A third point we saw last week, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, for his sheep. Are you one of his sheep? Did he lay down his life for you? Have you come to the Lord Jesus? Now point four, this is new and for today. Here we go. Jesus' sheep, we see this in John chapter 10. Jesus' sheep will it's that definitive, it's that definite, it's that positive, it's that certain, it's that sure. Jesus' sheep will hear his voice, then we could put in the word will know him and will believe, while those who are not his sheep will not, will do none of the above. So this is explaining how come there are people who heard Jesus and didn't believe. God in the flesh, and didn't believe. Like, 
That must have been the best evangelism ever on the planet. The Son of God in the flesh preaching the gospel to sinners. But there were people who didn't believe. Their rejections must have been the worst rejections on the planet ever. They didn't believe. So Jesus, in the chapter, explains to us multiple times how come those people didn't believe. In other words, the point is, it's not that my gospel is deficient. It's not that my preaching is deficient. It's something about y'all. There's something about y'all which explains why you did not believe. And it's because you're not my sheep. Now, look, we see this in chapter 10 and verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. That's to the true shepherd. That's Jesus. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. They, they hear his voice, and he calls them by name. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. That's definitive. Not they might. I hope they will. Maybe if it's a good day. Nope. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. No maybes, no mites, they know his voice. Again, in verse 5, it's in the negative. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. So they'll know Jesus' voice. They won't know the voice of false prophets. They won't know the voice of cult leaders. They won't respond to those voices, but they know the voice of Jesus. They go, ah, that voice, that's my shepherd. People on the planet heard his voice audibly in his day. People on the planet hear his voice when they read God's word today. This is his voice today. That was his voice audibly then. But they all, the sheep, all hear his voice. We see it again in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. They know him. Or verse 16, and I have other sheep that's you and me in Gentile land here. We got a few people with Israeli blood in our church, three that I know of off the top of my head. But this is the Gentiles, other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It comes up again down in verse uh, 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's in the negative. Why are those people not believing? Because antecedent to their not believing, they are not designated by God as Jesus' sheep. To go back to John 6, they are not some of those in John 6 that the Father gave to the Son and said, here, I want you to save them. Your, die, your death has specific reference to them. I want you to raise them up at the last day. I want you to be a start-to-finish Savior for them. No, the reason you guys are not believing is because you're not among my sheep. And then again, verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, that's back in John chapter 6, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So let me repeat again the point here. It's that Jesus' sheep will hear his voice, know him, and believe because they are his sheep, while those who are not his sheep will not. So, why are those people not believing, and why are those people believing? Jesus is explaining that. 
It's because those people are sheep. They're the ones the Father gave me. I'll raise them up at the last day. Why are those people not believing? It's because they're not sheep that the Father gave to me. I will not raise them up at the last day. The Father and the Son both knew who the sheep were. It had been predetermined from eternity past. Now there are, and this is helpful, so hang with me. It's kind of a doctrinal message today. You all ready for that? Say yes. Thank you for that. That's good enough. I can go with that one. It was a little lame, but I'll go with it. So there are three groups here that are identified, three separate groups that are identified each as sheep, but they differ one group from another. So I want to point them out to you. Here's the first group. We'll call them group A. There were sheep in Israel when Jesus went there in the flesh. In the days of his earthly ministry, there were sheep in Israel who were already saved, and those people will hear and will know and will believe in Jesus when they run into him. So what do I mean by that? Well, there were Old Testament saved people, and there were some of those on the planet when Jesus came. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant group was a very, very mixed bag. Probably most of the time, most of them were not saved, and only a remnant, a remnant, a few of them had hearts for God. A few of them were Israelites indeed. A few of them had circumcised hearts. When we get to Deuteronomy, we're going to see again and again, God pleads with them, circumcise your hearts. Some of them had circumcised their hearts, and they loved the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. And when Jesus, God in the flesh, showed up, they immediately realized, okay, this is him. And they, they recognized his voice, and they believed on him because they were already believers, they were already followers, true followers of the true and living God. In Romans 11, Paul describes them as a remnant according to God's election. So there was this group, sheep in Israel, already saved. Jesus comes on the scene, and they're like, yes, I hear that voice. I will follow him. He's my Savior. A good example of this would be the man named Nathaniel. And by the way, we named our oldest son after him. We were in the hospital and we had the boy and we knew we were going to name, if it was a boy, we never knew the genders of any of ours until they came out and they were all boys. So we should have just known that. But anyway, so he came out, he was, it was a boy. And we, if it was a boy, he was going to be named Nathaniel. And the nurse said, how do you want that spelled? And we thought, well, we hadn't thought about that. Is it A-E-L or I-E-L? We said, can you get us a Bible? She had to go down a floor or two, and she found a Gideon's Bible down there and brought it back up, and we looked up, and it's A-E-L, so our oldest is A-E-L. And when, when, when Jesus met Nathaniel, what did he say? Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel kind of humbly says, how did you know me? <laughs> like, you're right. And what does that no guile mean? You're, he's not just pretending to be a follower of God. He's not deceitful. He's not tricky about being a follower of God. No, he's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He's the real deal. He's the true thing. He is a saved, regenerate, reborn, salvation by grace through faith in the coming Messiah alone, Old Testament, Old Covenant believer. And when Jesus met him, immediately he believed in the Lord Jesus and continued to be saved. So there was this remnant chosen by grace, Romans eleven five. and when they heard Jesus, they believed. That's group A. There's nobody on the planet in that group anymore. All right, so that group was one-time thing when Jesus was on the planet. Let's go to group B. Group B is there were also sheep in Israel when Jesus came who were not yet saved, but who would be? 
there are other Israeli people on the planet who weren't yet true believers, had not circumcised their hearts, did not love the Lord their God, were not loyal to God as their God, did not bow before his sovereignty in their lives, but they're about to. That's group B. They're down in verse 26. Please look at the verse with me. Here's the opposite. Here's the opposite of them. But you, here's to the not believers, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The opposite of that means some will believe. Why? Because they are among my sheep. So there, there were people in Jesus' day who had not yet become true Israelites, Israelites in whom there's no guile, but they're about to. They're going to hear the words of the Lord Jesus and become saved, become believers, become followers of Christ. Just like some of you should hear the words of the Lord Jesus, hear his voice and his word, and believe on him and be saved. This is, this is group, group B, Israelites who were not yet saved, who were about to because they were among his sheep. Now notice the order in verse 26. Being among his sheep is antecedent to being saved. The ones who believed on Jesus did so because they were among his sheep. When were they designated sheep and by whom? By the Father in eternity past. These are the ones that showed up in John chapter 6 where Jesus said, there's this group that the Father gave me. I laid down my life for them. I will raise them up at the last day. I do the Father's will. This is his will. I do the job he gave me to do. He says, all of them will come to me. He prays for them in John chapter 17. Flip or scroll or whatever you do on your app over to John chapter 17 with me, please. And look at what Jesus prays in his great high priestly prayer in verse 2 to start with, John 17, 2. He's praying for these sheep in Israel who were not yet saved, but who were sheep. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there are those given to the Son by the Father. Jesus prays for them in John chapter 10. He specifically says, and I lay down my life for them. And he says that numerous times. And he says in John 6, and I will raise them up at the last day. And he says that numerous times. I will give eternal life to all that you have given me, says Jesus. It comes up again in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The Father gave them to the Son. The Son called them out of the world. They believed on the Lord Jesus and were saved. It comes up again in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Note that, please. There's one of those world passages. Jesus says, I'm not praying for everybody in the world for this, but I am praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. They were designated as sheep by God the Father in eternity past. They were given to the Son. Here, save these. His saving death on the cross, though sufficient to redeem all, was efficient and intended to be efficient only for those sheep the Father had given to the Son. He laid down his life for the sheep, he says numerous times in John chapter 6. And here in his high priestly prayer, the same thing comes up again. So there, are, there were sheep in Israel who were not yet saved, but who would be. It was infallible. It's going to happen. They will come to me. They will hear my voice. And John 6, I will raise them up at the last day. 
Are you hanging with me? Time for group C. There's a third group of sheep in Jesus' day. They are Gentile sheep who were not yet saved, but who would be. That's back in verse 16 again, John 10, 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What fold? The Israel fold. The Jewish fold. I got a other sheep. It's most of you in this room who are believers. It's you. The Lord Jesus is referring to you. you did you know that you're in the Bible? You're in the Bible right there. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, the Israeli fold. I must. The Father gave them to me. I know who they are. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, Jew and Gentile, bond and free, one shepherd. Gentile sheep who were not yet saved, but who would be, because the Father gave them for the Son to the Son. In Romans chapter 11, Paul refers to these as wild olive shoots who are grafted into Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promises that are ultimately in Christ, Romans eleven seventeen. Last week, I referred to them in my own little thing as feral cats. Y'all, bunch of feral cats from Gentile land, wild animals that Christ tamed and reined you in and brought you to himself. So there are these three groups of sheep, sheep in Israel who already believed, sheep in Israel who were going to believe when they heard him, and sheep who are of another fold, Gentiles who are going to hear him and believe him. But they're all designated by God in eternity past. These are my sheep. I give them to you, God the Son. He laid down his life specifically for them, though generally for all, and he promises he will give them faith. They will believe. They will follow him, and he will raise them up at the last day. It's all very definite. There's no uncertainties. God's not up in heaven saying, man, I hope this plan works. We gave it our best. We did everything we could do. I hope some people will believe. I just hope we can get some into heaven and raise them up at the last day. No, it's all definite. You will, you will, they will, you will, and you will raise them up at the last day. Now, can we get all theological for a minute? Was that theological already? Maybe it was. This is a thing that the theologians call. You want to learn a term if you didn't know this already? This is a thing the theologians call effectual calling. So there it is, and there's a definition for it, a decent one. What this means is there is an outward, a general call. That's the gospel going out. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. And it falls on everybody's ears who heard it. And it's a general and an outward call. It's not efficient. It doesn't make everybody a believer. It's an outward call. It can be resisted. It is resisted by many people. Stephen, on his, in his sermon on, in Acts chapter 7, says, why do you resist the Holy Spirit? There is an outward call, and it can be resisted. Not everybody responds to it with saving faith. We see this in Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Remember, there's four soils. And the good seed falls on the first soil, and the first soil is a path, and everybody's been tromping on the path, and the seed doesn't go in, so it doesn't bear up, and it's the devil snatches it away, and they go, I don't want anything to do with your God and your Bible. That's the first seed. They heard the general call. They trampled it. The devil snatches it away. Then there's the second seed, the rocky ground. They make a quick profession. I believe, and with joy, but very quickly, it turns out to be only a temporal profession because they turn away from Christ, trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which they were set apart or sanctified, count his blood as common, and say he's just a dead rabbi, and that's just human blood. Persecution and hardship 
and they wither away. Then there's the third seed, the thorny ground. They, have the, they make a profession, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke them, and they become unfruitful. All three of those soils, the path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, receive the outward call, believe on the Lord Jesus. None of them were saved. The fourth soil is the good soil. The seed goes in deeply and bears fruit unto everlasting life. And they continue and they remain and they keep on following Jesus and he raises them up at the last day. There is an outward call. Not everybody who hears the outward call believes, right? I mean, that's obvious. It's obvious in the word, it's obvious in life. But there's also an inward call. It's a call that is effectual. It's a call that always calls people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that call is what theologians call the effectual call. That call is what makes the difference between you believed or you did not believe. It's an inward, effectual call. It is, in fact, this. It is the Holy Spirit illuminating the mind to see light in Christ and turning the will to will to believe, to, to bow. It is the will that gets turned. It is the mind that gets enlightened, and whew, you're a believer. That's what theologians call effectual calling. There's an outward call. It can be resisted. There's an inward call. It turns your will. It illuminates your mind. You believe. Paul, in Romans 8, shines some light on this. I will put these verses up since they're over there in Romans, and you're on your app, and I don't want you to have to skip to Romans all of a sudden. So here they are, Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, and I understand some Christians differ on this. You're welcome to differ. You're still welcome to be a part of Cornerstone Church and serve in various ways if you differ. But some Christians say, well, see, it's all based in God's foreknowledge of who would believe. Let me just, I can't spend time on that, but just think of it this way. How can God foreknow something if it is not certain? And if it, how can it be certain unless he made it certain? God foreknows things because he established them. He determined them. They became his decree and his counsel when eternity passed. In time now, Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything that's happening is exactly what he said. Yes, that, no, that. Yes, that, no, that. And eternity passed. Same with human salvation. God is absolutely sovereign in it as well. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, watch this, he also justified. Oh, wait a minute. This is not the general call. He doesn't justify everybody who gets the general call. Many of them resist and harden their hearts and don't believe. This call was the inward call. This is the effectual call. Everyone who receives this call is also justified, and those whom he justified, they're also glorified, which equals, I will raise them up at the last day. So there is a general outward call, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Some people resist the Holy Spirit and do not bow and do not believe. Others freely and willingly turn because God turned their will. He's bigger than you think he is. He can turn a human will, easy thing. And he illuminated their minds and freely and willingly they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Romans 8 is Paul expounding on what's in John chapter 10. But there are some other passages in addition to Romans 8 we could look at. Here's why I'm sharing them, incidentally. One of you gave me a book recently, and I just happened to pick it up and start reading it this week. It's by Jonathan Edwards, and it's his treatise on grace. His treatise on grace. It's really excellent. Did Edwards ever write write anything that wasn't excellent? And he adds some passages to Romans 8. He starts with Romans 8, I noticed. Hey, that's in my sermon. Good. Let's see what else he's got. And then he also went to Acts chapter 2 about this internal, effectual call. Acts 2, 37 to 39 ends with this. For the promise of the Holy Spirit is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off in Gentile land, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Well, the promise of the Holy Spirit is not to everybody who hears the general call because probably the greater number of them reject Christ. So this is... This call has got to be the inward call, the effectual call. The promise of the Holy Spirit is to those sheep that the Father gave to the Son who will hear his voice, who will be effectually called. Again, Edwards pointed to Hebrews 9.15. The last clause of that verse is this. In order that they which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Hey, everybody who's called with this call winds up, raised up at the last day, with the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's not the outward general call. This is the inward effectual call. Edwards gives us another passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. It's a prayer of Paul. And the very God of peace, may he sanctify you wholly. Faithful is he who calls you, who will also do it. This call, faith was he who calls you, is an effectual call. It's a specific call. It's a call to all those who are going to really believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. So, what are we saying? We're saying that this thing Jesus is teaching us about these three groups, and there's sheep, and the sheep are going to believe. Sheep are going to hear his voice. The sheep are going to follow him. He gives his life for the sheep. He will raise the sheep up at the last day. This is all about effectual calling. Those whom the Father gave to the Son will call upon the Lord Jesus in the day of God's power in their lives. They will infallibly believe. Every one of them will make it to the last day, and they'll go to heaven forever. Now, why did I take time to preach on all this to you? Because this has some very important implications for real life. So let's ask the question, put it up, please. Why does this matter? Here's point A on why this matters. Well, as you will know already, this explains why some believe and others do not. And that's exactly what Jesus is explaining to us in this passage. Again, verse 26, let me explain why you guys aren't believing. Here's why you aren't believing. It's because you're not of my sheep. You're not of that group that the Father gave me, and so you're rejecting me, and you're resisting and stiff-arming me, and not bowing the knee. Why are they doing that? Because you're not of that group that the Father gave me who are called sheep. Jesus is explaining why some believe and others do not. He's also explaining this. How do you explain the fact that you have God in the flesh doing the best gospel preaching there has ever been, completely in the power of the Holy Spirit, and some are responding by saying, he's got a demon and he's insane? 
How do you explain that? Jesus says, here's how you explain that. You've got to understand effectual calling. You've got to understand the Father gave me some sheep. I'm saving every one of them. These people aren't sheep. At least we don't know they're sheep yet. Maybe later in life they'll believe. Then we'll know, oh, they're also one of those sheep. It just wasn't their day yet. This explains why some believe and others do not. I mean, Paul says in Romans 1.16, listen to this. You know this verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God. How powerful is the power of God? Pretty powerful. How come people hear the gospel then and don't believe it when the gospel is the power of God? How can that be? Why isn't our gospel like a great big bowling ball? This is probably a dumb illustration, but I like sharing dumb illustrations with you sometimes so you can see what dumb things come into my mind, all right? Why isn't our gospel like a great, big, powerful bowling ball? We can just roll it at sinners and down they go on their knees calling upon the name of the Lord. Why are we sharing and sharing and sharing and praying for our lost friends and children and coworkers and neighbors? And why are they not believing? Is there something weak about our gospel? Is there something wrong? Is Jesus really the way, the truth, the life? No man comes to the Father but by him. Why do so many people not see it? Why did they not see it then? Again, God in the flesh, speaking words of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He has a demon and he's insane. How do you explain that? Jesus is explaining it. They're not of my sheep. They're not sheep that the Father gave me. Jesus is going to describe this more in the Gospel of John. There are many places. I'll take you to one right now. It's John chapter 12. The verses are not going to be up there, so you've got to move in your app or move in your paper Bible. John chapter 12, verse 39. And he's talking again about the unbelief of the Jewish people. How do you explain it? Verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. They could not. They were not able For again, Isaiah said, quote, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. God says, I don't want to heal them. So I've blinded their eyes and I've hardened their hearts. The Bible also says the devil, the God of this age, has hardened the hearts of unbelievers. Second Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4. Yeah, God uses them as agents. God uses them as his tools. Here's another verse that's in the same ballpark, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, 6 and 7. You remember this. One plants, this is evangelism. Here we are. One plants, but you don't get to see the conversion. Another waters. You come along next in their life, and you're watering the seed that's already been planted. But you don't get to see the conversion, maybe. What comes next? God gives the increase. Whether they are saved or not by that seed you've sown is in the hands of God. God gives the increase, and he gives it to some, to sheep, to those the Father gave to the Son. This explains why some believe and others do not. And it'll help you, because you might be thinking, man, is something wrong with our gospel? 
we sure, we sure we, did we get this right? Is everything working here? How come we're trying so hard? How come we're over at the community college? How come we're over at Joppa Town High? How come we're in the mom's corner? And how come we don't have all these people believing and saying, baptize me? Ultimately, it's due to the sovereignty of God. Our job is to be faithful. His job is to save. He does that when he wants. Here's a second reason why this matters. It matters because it explains to us why some people believe and others do not. Here's a second reason why it matters. This circumscribes, if you don't know that good old word, it means if you draw a circle around something and say, this is what's inside and the rest is outside, you have just circumscribed the things that are inside. So this restricts within limits, this circumscribes our gospel methodology and relieves us of the pressure to come up with gospel razzmatazz. to find something to prop up and to help out our weak, our lame, our ineffectual gospel. There could be many examples. I'll cite two, and I'm not really bagging on this church that I'm going to tell you about. Bless them. I think they have the gospel. They love Jesus. May the Lord use them. I don't like all their methods. Maybe you've seen this on the world wide web, on the interwebs, if you will, Did you see that church service where they have drummers on zip lines going back and forth in the the sanctuary? Like they've got a marching drummer drum up here and they're they're drumming up there and people are all looking up. and, And so, like, what is the thought? Like, that'll save them. Our our gospel isn't working too good. It's like, it's broke, something wrong here. Let's get drummers on zip lines. Another church, I'm not bagging on them either. I trust they have hearts for the Lord and want to see people saved. I don't like their methodology. They said, oh, you guys had drummers on the thing? We're putting our pastor on a zip line. And while he's preaching, he's flying back and forth over you. And his sermon was on the second coming of Christ. Like you're sitting there looking up like it's Jesus in the class. Well, that'll save them. No, all we have to do is hold forth the word of life, and it's up to the Holy Spirit to give the inward call. And those who are the sheep, they will come. Bah! We love you, Lord Jesus. The great English preacher who died in January 31, 1892, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's on my wall. I got a picture of him on my wall in my study. I have a bunch of guys. He's one of them. He once said, you know what fly tape is? You all remember fly tape? It's a little roll, and the fly tape comes out, and it's sticky, and the flies are attracted to it, and when they land on it, ha, ha, I got you, right? Spurgeon says, if you need something to attract the flies to your fly tape, better throw away your fly tape. And if you need something else to attract people to the gospel, then that thing's the power of God unto salvation, not the gospel. Your gospel's weak. Spurgeon said elsewhere, and this is a rough paraphrase, and I didn't look it up this week, but he says, in the gospel, we have a lion in the cage. Jesus Christ is a lion in the cage. How do we get people to believe in our lion? He said, well, let the lion out of the cage. (laughs) Let them meet the lion. You don't need to show them a whole lot of photos of a lion, but not meet the lion. You don't need to do other things. Let's tell stories about lions. Let them meet the lion. 
Give them the gospel. That's the strongest thing we got. It's the power of God unto salvation. No words on earth are more powerful to save sinners than the gospel. Just hold it forth. So we can rest in the same spirit in which Paul rested. We can do the same thing as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4. I love this passage. It's so, so fitting to our time. Paul evaluates his ministry, especially in light of the fact that not everybody's believing. How do you explain that, Paul? 2 Corinthians 4, I'm putting them up. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Can it be tempting for Christians to lose heart? Well, yeah, because you're praying for your friend and you're evangelizing your friend and you wrote repent in the bottom of their glass so when they drink, they see the word repent and you're just trying everything you can think of. You even took them to the church with a pastor on a zip line, hoping they'll get saved. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. How do you pull that off, Paul? Instead of losing heart, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. You mean in your day, and so do you mean in our day, there are ways we could go about gospel preaching and gospel methodology that could be disgraceful and underhanded? There are. Not all methods are acceptable for gospel ministry. And we refuse to practice cunning, here's the part I really dig, or to tamper with God's word. We don't suppress the hard parts. Well, that, that won't be good for evangelism. That'll just offend them. We'll, we'll like white out all the offensive parts and only give them the parts they really like. And we'll rebrand things so they'll go and say, oh, I think I like Jesus, even in their fallen hearts. And anything that could be offensive, don't, don't preach about that or then we can't invite our friends. No, you want your friends to come and get offended. By the gospel, by the word of God and what it says about them and their sin and their need for Christ. I plan, I plan to offend everybody I can in the right way with the word of God, by the grace of God. Not be being offensive, but letting the lion out. And if they're offended at the lion, then they're going to get offended. We don't want to hold back the lion. We don't want to hide the lion. Paul goes on to say, but, we don't tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and decide to go. Open statement of the truth. When you understand that God has given the son sheep, the sheep will hear his voice. They will follow him. He'll get them to heaven. He'll raise them up at the last day. You can just say, you know what my ministry is going to be? It's just going to be open statement of the truth. We're not going to pull any punches. We're not going to hide anything that's truth. We're going to openly state the whole counsel of God. Open statement of the truth. I'll let you in on a little something. In my study, I'm sitting at my desk, and over here there's a Kleenex box on that table that runs that way. And I usually have a three-by-five card leaning against the Kleenex box with something on it that I want to see a lot. And the thing that's on my Kleenex box three-by-five card right now is, it just says this, open statement of the truth. I'm living in open statement of the truth land these days, and you should be too, because Paul was. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. Yeah, but Paul, not everybody's believing. What should we do? Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing. There's nothing we can do to prop up our weak gospel. There's no razzmatazz we need to bring in. If the gospel itself didn't save them, there's no other thing. How do you explain them? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We're not I'm not preaching me. But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, here's what has to happen. For God who said, Genesis 1-1, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is effectual calling. That's what sinners need. They don't need the preacher on a zip line. They don't need it to suppress the hard parts and round off the rough edges of the gospel and the word of God. What they need is for God to shine in their hearts and give the light of the knowledge of Christ. So we don't need to tamper with the word. We don't need to come up with gospel razzmatazz. So some of you who have been here a while, I've heard this so many times, I'm so sorry to repeat it again, but I was saved when I was 17. There I said it, from a complete pagan background. And if you had known me at Westminster High in 1972, I probably would have been one of the last people in our class that you would have thought, I'm gonna evangelize him. He'll believe. No one ever shared the gospel with me. No one ever invited me to anything, probably because they said, well, that's a lost cause. I'm not going after that one. Forget that. And yet when one of my friends made a profession of faith, and then he said, I said to him, where have you been? And he said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Immediately, I wanted it. I wanted it. And the next Tuesday, I believe, I went to the Bible study, and the pastor preached the law of God and brought conviction of sin. And then he preached the cross and the grace of God, and he brought salvation and repentance. And I believe it was that very next Tuesday, I moved from darkness to light. How did that happen to the least likely character in the senior class at Westminster High? And all he did was hold out the gospel. Friends, that's all we need. We don't need to come up with gospel razzmatazz. And here's a third and final reason we're almost done. Hang in there. Why, why this effectual calling thing helps us. It gives us hope in evangelism. It gives us hope. So how's the church doing in evangelism these days? Well, I'll tell you frankly, it's hard times. In this part of America, it's hard times right now. People's hearts are hardened, and things are happening in the culture that are designed by the devil, that are intentionally designed by the devil to further harden young hearts, young males in that way, and young females in that way, and they are being hardened by the system that he's developed here for hardening youthful hearts. And how are we going to reach them? And we're tempted sometimes to say, Lord, will anybody believe? And we have to remember, yes. Just as in the terrible times of the Old Testament life when everybody was going after the idols, God always had his remnant. Good name for a Christian rock band, by the way, the remnant. God always had his remnant. And he said to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, yet, see all that? See how bad it is? Yet. I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal, every mouth which has not kissed him. God's always had his sheep. He's always had his remnant. And evangelism is not a fool's errand. 
we just preach the gospel. And Jesus' sheep will hear his voice, will know him, and will believe, while those who are not his sheep will not. All right, I've got to land the plane real fast. Can you fasten your seatbelt? We're going straight down. You okay with that? We're going to hit hard. So, in eternity past, the Father gave God the Son some people. Here they're called sheep. And he, the Father gave the Son an assignment relative to the sheep. Redeem them completely so that they're raised up at the last day. The Son does the Father's will. He came and said, that's the mission I'm on. I'm not doing my own will, but I'm doing the will of the Father. And that's what Jesus has been doing these 2,000 years. He's getting the sheep that the Father gave him safely into a fold, and he will raise them up at the last day. And the will of the Father is prospering in his hand. Amen. Let's bow. Father, thank you for giving us this portion of your word. Help us to understand some of these things are kind of deep things. Ultimately, we're so thankful to know that you are sovereign and you are God. And the weight, the burden of turning sinners' hearts does not ultimately rest with us. We sow the word, we sow the seed, but you must give the increase. Oh, Father, we plead with you that you might be merciful and gracious, for you are, and that those sinners with whom we're sowing seed, may they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you bring in your sheep and would you use us in the process? And maybe some of you in this room, somehow in this sermon have realized, well, I don't know if I'm one of his sheep, how do I know? Well, that's easy, just believe. And then you'll know you're one of his sheep. But if you keep resisting the Holy Spirit until the day you die, you will find out abruptly that you are not one of his sheep. For at the last day, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, and he says to the goats, depart, I never knew you. And he says to the sheep, enter into the joy of the Lord. You want to arrive at the day of judgment as one of Jesus' blood-bought sheep. So I plead with you, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, would you draw them to the Lord Jesus that they may find life. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.